You are listening to the Savage Wonder Podcast. This show is a long-form one-on-one conversation with a veteran in the arts. This show is produced by Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a tax-exempt, nonprofit 501c3 organization, providing a platform for talented veterans to create compelling live theater and events in order to enhance, enliven, and invigorate American theater and the live performance arts. There is one veteran writer that I am always nervous about. Um, I'm nervous because of the genre he writes in. I'm nervous because of the content that I know he's capable of. And I have to sanity check myself to make sure I'm in a good enough mental place that I can handle whatever it is he has put out that day. And he puts out stuff every day on Instagram at Cross Massachusetts. I'm talking, of course, about our guest, Nicholas Estathew. Um, Nick is an incredibly talented writer. His writing, uh, at least most of it uh, that is available for public consumption, is in the realistic horror genre. Uh, For those of you that are not familiar with it, don't worry. I will read some early in the episode Um, because I think it's important to kind of get a grasp on exactly uh, what kind of stuff he's writing. Uh, So trigger warning, wear a cup. Uh, It is, it's hard hitting stuff. Um, And I think hard hitting because it is not fantastical. Um, It does delve sometimes into the paranormal or the supernatural, but it's, it's couched in reality. And uh, I came into this interview with a ton of questions, um, really wanting to get to know Nick and understand where his head was at and why he was generating this kind of content so prolifically. And um, and then, you know, I won't give away any spoilers on how long he's been working on all this, but I mean, he, he's doing a lot of mining. And, um, you know, I had a lot of questions about why that was. So I will keep you guys in suspense until the episode and you can hear the answers for yourself. But I, uh, but I'm very impressed with his creativity and this kind of unending, this ever deepening well of horror that he seems to be able to, to, you know, go to uh, day in, day out. So uh, I'm trying to think, if there's anything else you need to know to fully appreciate this episode, I, I think the biggest thing is that, you know, I, I don't want to play amateur psychiatrist <laughs> these episodes, but you know, you can't divorce the person from their art. Um, you know, and, and, and it is certainly with work like Nick's, you know, it just begs the questions of where's his head at what, that he's able to generate this kind of content. So, um, I will say um, there are some things that we don't get into in the episode. Uh, some things that Nick, uh, you know, you'll hear early on, um, just things he isn't prepared to delve into yet. Uh, I will say that it it's not the first time I've heard that from a Cold War era veteran. Um it's, it's amazing, I, and I, I don't want to make too much of it. I also don't want to make too little of it. But I think it's interesting, <clears throat> some of the, I don't even want to say shenanigans, some of the misconduct, some of the 
aberrations, some of the um, abhorrent behavior that you see from the um, 1990s era military um, that I've kind of become hip to just through doing the show and through talking to a couple of Cold War era veterans that have experienced high degrees of trauma with in, in at the hands of a military that I think was a little unfocused. Uh, you know, when, when you have war, when you have a big game in front of you, the team kind of has focus and has purpose. And I'm going to speculate that that slackness that comes in a peacetime military um, can lead to some pretty horrific things. Not to say there haven't been, you know, uh, a lot of, you know, dangerous, debaucherous, <laughs> um, traumatic events that haven't happened stateside in the wartime military as well, um, you know, Fort Hood. Uh, but certainly for, um, you know, in the 90s, I, th- I think it is interesting to me uh, that, you know, there's been a couple of these episodes where some some things really went off the rails uh for some soldiers that were serving in the nineties. Anyway, um, so that's one takeaway that I had everything else, every other epiphany I have, I think I have on air with Nick. So we'll get right to it. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I'm the artistic director at veterans repertory theater. And this is the savage wonder of Nicholas F. Stathew. Welcome to the show, Nick. Hey, thanks, man. Uh, dude, it's. Uh, I feel like this has been a long time coming, and maybe that's just in my mind, because from the moment uh, that Ben Fortier put me onto your work, I was like, "What the fuck?" I was like, "I got to talk to this guy, man." So I, I want to do something a little different to start sure. this episode, because yeah. this episode is going to be a different episode. I uh, I want to read you back to you. Can I do that for a second? Can you indulge me? Uh, yeah, yeah. So I didn't want to cherry pick. So I was like, I just, I'm going to go with whatever your latest post is. And then I saw you posted <laughs> like last night and I was like, okay, cool. That, that was, that was a great exhibit a for what I wanted to talk about. So I'm going to read it for everybody's edification here. All right. It's titled 1931 surgery. Not what I wanted to see. I found a nurse standing outside of a surgical room. She was in the process of adjusting her garb when I cut her throat from behind and left her bleeding to death on the linoleum floor. I pushed open the swinging doors of the surgical chamber and found myself face to face with horror. A young woman lay on the operating table, arms strapped down and legs in stirrups, the feet bolted into place. She struggled against the bonds and the thing clawing its way out of her stomach. I suspect she would have screamed had a great flap of skin not been sewn across her mouth. At some point, someone had removed her eyes as well. This last, however, may have been done as a mercy. The discoloration on her skin and the marks upon it appeared to have been caused by whatever abomination grew within her. A trio of nurses and a pair of doctors worked around the victim, their voices strained and their focus solely upon the salvation of the child and not the mother. As I prepared to step forward and kill them all, the young woman's belly exploded. A 
rib shot out, pierced one doctor's eye, and burst from the back of his head as he collapsed to the floor. The woman on the table shuddered and expelled the thing within her half through the, uh, within within her half through her stomach and half in what would have been a natural birth. The thing in her tore her open, and a great clawed hand snapped out, gripped the closest nurse by the throat, and shredded it. The other two nurses came at the thing with syringes, plunging the needles into its gray-green skin. The other doctor stepped over his dead colleague and tried to wrench the thing from the mother's corpse. As he did so, a long black tongue lashed out, snatching first the doctor's left eye and then his right. The thing then grabbed the nurses and pulled them into the corpse. The room shuddered as their legs disappeared into her belly, and then the body collapsed upon itself. I found myself alone with a screaming doctor and a pair of corpses. I took a length of surgical tubing and looped it around the doctor's neck. He died quicker than the others, but not nearly as quickly as he would have liked. It's hard for me to like go in and explain to an audience what your writing is like. I was like, this is the shortest way I can do that. So at this point, we're down to three people listening and everyone else is vomiting on the floor. So I guess I guess the first thing is, I mean, tell me about let, let's start with a 30,000 foot view. What the fuck? Why? Why? Yeah. Do you go, why do you go to this place? Where does this all come from? So, apparently, I am writing and working my way through some uh, personal trauma. <laughs> um, and, and, and that's it. Um, it's really how I wrestle with the stuff that's in my head. Okay. You know? So, I mean, obviously, that begs the question then. I mean, so... Well, I'll, I'll take the scenic route of asking this, asking this question. Um, I know that Marlon Brando, you know, widely considered the greatest method actor of all time and, you know, highly regarded and all that, didn't actually have that traumatic a life. He had a pretty normal upper middle class upbringing and lived a, a relatively dilettantish life for the most part, but he could achieve depths of feeling because his sensitivity was such that he was just so finely attuned. It didn't take much for him to go to a place that a lot of people could relate to, even though he had experienced far less than many of them. I say that because I think, I think sometimes it's an overwrought truism that artists have to have experienced a ton in order to create their art. I think sometimes if your sensitivity is just calibrated delicately enough, um, you can pick up and intuit all you need to create great art without having experienced the absolute depths of maybe everything your characters go through. Right. In your, to, to your way of thinking, do you think, do, do, I mean, has your life been the human parasite or, or is there a degree of like, Hey, uh, I, I am also you know, pretty finely calibrated and I can, I can pick up and I'm sensitive to enough to capture. I, I think it's a good mix is what it is. Um, I, I think I had a pretty, pretty standard, you know, North American childhood. I'm a child of the 90s. You know, I'm 49. Um, parents split when I was like three, but my dad was always in the picture. Um, my dad was pretty much a standard, at times, Vietnam vet. Um, a lot of stuff that he still deals with. He just wanted to talk about, and I get that completely. Um, Pops was a hard man. Never touched me. 
But uh, <laughs> didn't want to make that man mad. Still don't, you know. Um, stepfather was a little handsy times, um, more than anybody needed. Uh, some stuff when I was in the service, and but other than that, no, you know. I have a really active imagination. Uh, I grew up next to a cemetery, so. What? Uh, where'd you grow up? Where'd... Uh, so Nashville, New Hampshire. So okay. right over the border. Sure. Uh, Mass. Okay. Yeah. And um, when you look back, what when you do kind of a QAQC on yourself, what do you find are the memories? And for lack of a better word, the trauma that sticks with you the most, is it from your childhood or is it from the military? What, what sticks with you? Um, mostly it's the childhood and it's just beginning with the military because I'm just starting to look at it, you know. Um, it's been locked up and closed down for a long time. When it's were, been 20, yeah, I was 25 say, years. 25 years, yeah. More than that, shit. 27. Wow. Yeah, 94, 95. Yeah. <laughs> when, when, when did you get out? Was that when? 95? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And what did, so, you, did you do? Did you do one enlistment? Or how long were you in for? Not even. I got uh, my incident happened at the end of AIT. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was rough. Um, I had big plans. You know, I I gained weight to get into the military. I was a, was a really thin guy, so it's a whole lot of stuff. Um, Let, let's start maybe with your with what got you into the military. Why did you join? Was it because your dad was a Vietnam vet? Did you have an impression of the military that you wanted to follow? Uh, no, because my dad hated it. My dad had an option: two years in prison or Vietnam, and. Well, Army. I shouldn't say Vietnam. Army. Uh, it was the best decision he ever made, but he hated it. Um, I was literally, if you remember that commercial from the 80s, Be All That You Can Be, you know, that was me. I was like, I, I need to serve my country. And then, of course, they're like, you're too small, kid. I'm like, ah! So it took me a couple of years to gain the weight. But And did you think this was going to be a career? Not necessarily a career, but I had goals. You know, it was, you know, 13 Foxtrot, so a Ford Observer. Then it was Airborne. And the goal was to try for Ranger School, you know. Um, didn't happen. Blasted my way through basic and AIT. Uh, my dad still has my, you know, my little most motivated trophy somewhere. But, uh, yeah. How much, uh, I, I'll put you on the spot and you can just tell me if it's a bridge too far. How much do you want to talk about what happened? Um, I, mentally, I can't. Um, I, I've only told like one person. Yeah. And that was my therapist, my buddies, you know, from the army. They're still like, what happened? I'm like, can't, can't. Let's just talk about something else. Wow. You know? Wow. Um, so. So it resulted, though, in an early separation. Yeah. yeah I was not pleased. Yeah. Talk you know. about just what your mind state was then leaving the army so soon. Angry. Angry at everything that had happened that put me there, you know. Because, um, man, I was 
I was fucking gung ho. You know, <laughs> I was. Uh, did you did you feel diminished? Did you feel unfulfilled? Did you feel unrequited? How how did you feel just for going forward and finding other stuff now to do in life when you've been heading in one direction so hard? I I didn't at first. Um, tried in the immediate aftermath to end it that didn't work out um thankfully and um picked up what i could and then just uh moved on you know but i shut it all down yeah you know yeah what did that mean for you moving on did it did it mean finding a completely 180 degree different line of work um, a mental shift or was it physical relocation? What did that, what did that entail moving on from that? First it was, it was mental. Um, I, like I said, I locked a lot of it up and just, you know, compartmentalized bang done. Um, it fell back on what I always did, which was read. I always, um, Worked in a library for a little bit, met my wife, moved from Connecticut where I was living with my dad back up to New Hampshire. And um, she has yet to kill me, thankfully. And uh, yeah. So, but yeah. How, um, I, I don't want to, I don't want to dwell on this more than you want. But I feel like I, I shouldn't have just skipped over the fact that your stepfather was like handsier than he should have been. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> what the fuck is up with that? I mean, and that um, has to be pretty impactful. I mean, that. Yeah, that was. Yeah. Like. Like, I'll talk to the kids that, you know, I'm a teacher in case you didn't know. You know I teach, right. you know, fifth graders right now. But before that was seventh and eighth. And before that, for a couple of years, I worked with intensive special needs kids and you know especially with the kids i work with now i tell them guys we can't ask too many questions about home if people don't want to talk about it sometimes home just isn't that great you know um i tell them i said take a look at my nose take a good look and you notice that it's a it's crooked you know and that's because it was broken for me a couple of times you know and that's what I mean by handsy, you know. So it wasn't sexual, it was physically abusive. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh I got I got one great memory <laughs> that I tell uh I feel like my brother and I joke about it. But so my brother was running. Like running run hauling ass because he knew where the line was and he would it was like the old Looney Tunes. He would jump right over it, you know, and then back on the other side. Um, so this one time, he must have been eight or nine, and he, had, you know, he was running his mouth to our our stepfather, and he's just hauling ass. And I see him running, and I'm on the porch, and I've got the doors open because we're supposed to go to basketball practice. So he comes flying out, you know, like I slam the door and I close, you know, give him time to get down the porch steps and over to the car. Well, stepfather comes out, throws it open, and you know I step in front of him, 
and he just grabs me and he throws me. Well, the thing is, he threw me over the fucking railing of the porch. <laughs> and it's just, it's a face plant under the driveway and everything. And our dad would come up every two weeks to get us. He drove up from Connecticut and then back. But he would also come up for the games and everything. He never, the man never missed anything. So it, it must have been like a week later. We're at a basketball game, and our coach would let us go sit with our dad, you know, when we were yeah. playing, yeah. which was a lot because I rode the bench a lot. I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't a solid player. So I'll go. I, I sit down next to my dad. My dad's sitting next to my stepfather. My dad looks at my face. He goes, "What happened?" You know, still your black eye, I'm all scratched up and stuff. I'm like, "Oh, you know, Mike threw me." He goes, "Oh." Oh, he did. Okay. All right. Listen, kid, do me a favor. Go sit down on the bench. I, I got to talk to Mike for a minute. So I go down on the bench. You know, my brother comes on and we're sitting down and we look up and my dad is just like this. Real close. And you can just see just the, the color draining from my stepfather's face. You know, it didn't do any good. You know, really? Yeah, because my mother was like, you know, you know, he'll beat your father up, which made us laugh because my 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 dad's a tough man. And then she's like, you're just telling us how much trouble we'd be in if we said anything again. So just didn't. Wow. But, did you did you ever say anything to your dad again? Did your dad ever get involved again? Um, we probably did, but I don't know if anything came of it. Because uh, they probably threatened my dad with going to jail. Yeah. Because my dad is the type of guy who would uh, put somebody in the hospital easily and not even mean it. So, How much of what ended up happening in the Army was related to your childhood, do you think? Or what, it was a completely separate set of circumstances? I think it's only related in the sense that my childhood obviously deeply affected who I am. Sure. You know, um, I tend to speak my mind when I shouldn't. Mm. And, uh, and, and I did, and I paid for it in a way I didn't think possible. So. How, how much of that childhood do you think, I mean, I can understand how early on it would be, it would seem like a burden, but over time and now with the benefit of hindsight, do you think there's been silver linings to it? Or do you think it was, there was some, uh, a toughness or a competency that you developed that you wouldn't have otherwise gotten that's become core to who you are? Or do you think it just would have been better had that never, and any of it ended up happening? I don't know. I've never dwelled on the the what ifs of it because okay. it's just it's how I was raised yeah. it was my environment uh, you certainly don't think anything's out of the normal you know uh, my dad had severe psoriasis so it was completely normal to me to see all the plaque build up. And to see all the blood that would be there, uh, you know, aside from 
my stepfather, I just I thought that was how most dads looked. You know, it's it's what you're familiar with, you know. You got married relatively early then. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. We're doing our twenty-sixth wedding anniversary in May. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. That's a hell of an accomplishment. It is. That's uh that's more my wife than it is me. Because I, I don't know how she deals with me some days because I'm off the fucking chain. Are you? Oh, yeah. I'm, so, I'm just extra. I'm just loud and bouncing around, you know, stupid temper some days. Yeah. My daughter tells um, her little brother, she's like, but you're like, I'll say something. And he'll be like, really? Really, dad? He's 12. And my daughter, who's 24, she goes, hey, kid, you have no idea. You've got the calm, mellow dad. You know, this is, this is not the dad screaming through the house. So, yeah. Did you, I mean, it's, I, I and I'm not trying to play amateur psychiatrist. I'm just fascinated. <laughs> in when, when I read your stuff, I mean, there are days, and I'm sure that I'm not the first person to tell you this. There are days where I'm like, Nick, you're fucking crushing it. I can't read this today. I give yeah. it a like. I move. I'm like, I, 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 I can't do it today. Like there were times. I'll, I'll tell you. I so I've had this conversation about two people. Ben Fortier was the first one, and then you were the second. Where uh, we talked about you at Vet Rep. I was like, you know, Nick's writing is really good. I was like, we should have him on the blog. And and we were. Everyone was like, you know, like we get people that. You know, sometimes and I've told Ben Forty or this. I'm not telling tales out of school. Um, but you know, when Ben when Ben's writing comes on, there's people that have written and been like, I, I can't read them today. Like, and it, yeah. we don't lose subscriptions or anything, but people are just like, Hey, man, that that's a little hard. I, I can't deal with that today. And I was like, Yeah, if we put Nick on, that's going to be people are going to be like, What the fuck? Because it goes right to their inboxes. It's like, Yeah, okay. So I'm just opening up my emails. I'm like, What the fuck? You know, and I was like, yeah. We're going to scare the shit out of people, and they're not going to want to read stuff we send but i'm um, i'm endlessly fascinated with what you write because you haven't and i want to be clear about this because this was not i don't think people that are new to your work would have gotten this just from what i read but you haven't you're not just writing shock stories you've created an entire world an entire ecosystem in yeah. cross massachusetts i mean it's it's an impressive holistic undertaking i mean it's like holy shit you've created this ecosystem that's like vibrant and horrific but vibrant and 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 complete 360 degree treatment so this is not just hey i feel like having a temper tantrum or scaring the shit out of people (laughs) on on the page today this is like i mean this is something that that truly is is a world um did you intend to do that or how much of that was a happy accident and how much of that was intended uh it was a happy accident because so I am 49. I created Duncan Blood and Cross Massachusetts 31 years ago. So he's been kicking around in my head this whole time. And Christ, I don't know how many years ago I started on Instagram. But I started just throwing up, you know, little things about cross, like the history of cross, like bang, bang, bang. And then 
I did a couple about Duncan, and there was a really positive reaction. I'm like, well, I love Duncan. He's he's my man. Some of my first supernatural stories were with him. So I'm like, I hate writing in the first person. I hate it. But I'm like, the only way I can get Duncan's story across is if it's a journal. And so I started doing that, and people responded really well to it. They um they liked it. And you know, he's he's ageless just about. And he's just this some days he's a great guy, and some days he's just a miserable son of a bitch. You know? So I guess let's start at the beginning with that. And and I think I want to go back to the inspiration besides you, besides your own sense memory and, and well, you know, processing trauma and all that. Literarily, what were your influences? I mean, where was this coming from? So, my favorite author is John Steinbeck. Okay, he's got a really, he just punches you in the gut. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's, there's Ray Bradbury and Stephen King. And I remember finding this collection of short stories by a guy named M.R. James, okay? M.R. James only wrote ghost stories at Christmas time because he was English. And that's the English tradition, is they write and tell ghost stories on Christmas Eve because they're fucking English and, you know. But this guy was a professor of, like, ecumenical studies and ecumenical architecture at, like, Oxford and shit. But I was in the middle of one of his books, and then there's some weird station that plays only like 1970s shows. And there's an interview and it's, it's King, right? And it's Richard Matheson and it's Peter Straub. And I think it's William March was the other guy, right? All these like really heavy hitters. And they're all sitting there. They're all smoking cigarettes, you know, King's like 20 something years old and they're all talking and they start going, yeah, you know, like King turns to Matheson, he goes, I just I just love how you can make a reality evil. Like that gas station down the street is just messed up, you know? And then they all agree, they're like, Yeah, but MR James, really? And I'm like, Yeah, MR James. I mean, you gotta dig deep when you read that because there's so much there. But it's all guys like that, you know, Shirley Jackson. You know, tell you the story that messed me up the most when I read it was the lottery. Oh, it's because just how evil it is, and it's not even evil to be evil. They're evil because it's just it's what they do. (laughs) It's just no. And how old were you when you were reading this stuff? At what point in your life was this? Uh, Yeah. All right. So uh, the first King I read was The Gunslinger back in probably, I think, 87. So I must have been 13, 12 or 13. And my dad would always throw books at me and my mom, too. But my dad would be like, hey, you know, read this, but skip these pages. My dad didn't mind violence, but sex was something else. You know, I watched the movie Conan the Barbarian. 
my dad had a bootleg of it. Didn't know he had cut out all the sex scenes. Uh, I didn't even know there were sex scenes in the movie until uh, I was in my twenties. Uh, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> I was like, oh. But yeah, so I, I mean, I've been reading nonstop since I was about four. You know. Did you think that you were going to do something with it? Did you at, at any point did you think? You know, when you were young, did you think it could be a career? Did you think it would just be a hobby? Did you think I just like reading? What, where, where did you think it was going to go? Probably a hobby. Because okay. I, I remember entering a young author's competition in third grade. Wow. And I, I wrote a book on like four different languages, you know, just comparing them. Because, you know, what else is a third grader going to do? Jesus. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. I've got issues. Whoa. Yeah. I mean, what a nerd. I mean, that that's impressive, man. That's like, that's like serious, like intellect. That's, that's impressive. How, how did it go down? How'd the composition go down? I placed, you know, so that was nice. That is nice. That's a fun yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, so did you think, so I want to get the timeline, right? So when you first thought of Duncan blood and cross Massachusetts, right they're, they're together, you thought of both of them. At about 18? Yeah, I was a senior so. in high school. Yep. So when you first thought of them, were these just, was it something you were, was literally just in your head or were you taking notes on them? Were you trying to actually put pen to paper in any way? I had written one or two stories and I had let a couple of friends that I played D&D with and a couple of friends that I played football and stuff with, I let them read them and they liked them and then they just got they got tucked away. I got uh, I got booted out of my mother's house. Went down to live with my dad, and uh, it was pretty wild down there for a bit. You know, did some stuff. <laughs> what does that mean? Does that you know, some stuff? I'm assuming not literary stuff. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I was still writing. I was still writing a lot, but um, I was introduced to alcohol. Mm-hmm. Became very good friends for a while, you know. Well, you were writing that. That seems like a natural introduction. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, right. That's um, right. But that's interesting. Were you, were you? It was that a discipline you always held that you had to write on an ongoing basis. Yeah. Was it yeah. journaling or was it creative writing or what? What is just it creative? Wow. Just just creative. I was writing on the that little bit of time that we had in basic and AIT. I still had a notebook that I was writing in. So, where did that come from? Was that just because you were such a reader, or was there some? Was your mom or your dad inspiring you to do it? Was a teacher? Did a no. teacher push you? This is all internal. No. Wow. As far as I know, it's all internal except for one teacher at high school. Uh, this guy named Mister Richard White. And I'm going to tell you that my English teachers at high school were my salvation. I hated high school. It was a private all-boys school. It was, it was not a pleasant experience most of the time. But I remember I'd written this short story for Mr. White's creative writing class. And it starts off like this, you know, American GI, World War II, and he's 
in the long grass and he can hear the Germans coming towards him. And as they pass by him, he stands up and he just he opens fire, his own little ambush, right? But as he stands up, it shifts because it's going from the perspective of the soldier to what he really is. And he's like a 12-year-old kid playing war with his friends, you know? And um, I have it somewhere still. There's just a little check mark on it. That was Mr. White saying that it was acceptable. And on the back, he wrote, I find this to be an excellent rendition of childhood. I will not correct it in any way. And the man was a published author, you know, and he used to take our essays and assignments and he would put them on his table and then he would take out a stack of boxes like this, right? And he'd go, gentlemen, these are red pens. I'm going to go through all of them this weekend correcting your papers. And he would. <laughs> it would look like a stuck pig on my paper. Wow. Wow. But yeah, so he was... It was great. Did you see your writing materially improve from that? Are you somebody that responds well to criticism like that? I do now. Yeah. I did it for a while. In fact, um, I would be such a little bitch about it that my wife just went, I'm not reading your stuff anymore because you get offended. And... It took me a long time to realize that I was not personally being attacked if something wasn't working. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. What What about in the scholastic process? I mean, it, obviously, there's. it's a little easier probably to take criticism at that age. But was it for you or were you still? Oh, no. No, I was, still, I, was, I was a prick. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That says something. Um, I, I think you can only really – I think only – talented people really can have a prickish attitude about their work at that age. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you're most people, I mean, you might be, might be an Olympic athlete, but you'd be like, whatever, fine. Okay. You didn't like my essay, but if you're, yeah. if you're, a, if you're a talented writer, like you're, that's a hill you'll die on. I think Yeah, I think that's something. That's interesting. Well, it shouldn't have died on some of them. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have all of that stuff still? Are you good at keeping all of your stuff? Okay. No. Um, I kept that one piece because, like I said, Mr. White was great. I had another teacher, uh, Mrs. Starrett. Um, I walked into her room one day. It's first day, sophomore year. Sat down. I opened up The Grapes of Wrath. I love Steinbeck. She comes over to me. She looks down and she goes, is that Steinbeck? Yes. Show her the cover. She goes, Grapes of Wrath. I'm like, yep. Are you reading that for another class? I'm like, no. She goes, you're just reading it to read it. Yes. She goes, see me after class. I'm like, great. First day. I'm already in fucking trouble. What now? You know? So I stay after class. She walks me to the back of the room. And she's got a wall locker. And she opens it up. And it's all classics. Mm. She goes, anytime you want, you come back here. You grab a book whatever book she goes i've never seen somebody come in reading steinbeck on their own she goes the only book i suggest you don't read yet is deliverance huh. and so I, I i waited on deliverance for a while <laughs> now when you what was the first stuff you were writing on your own was it the duncan blood cross massachusetts stuff or was there other stuff you were writing there was other stuff before that you know attempts at you know fantasy fiction like okay. i read eyes of the dragon by stephen king 
and I've been reading stuff by Piers Anthony, the Dragonlance yeah. books, just yeah. tried my hand at that, tried my hand at some sci-fi, and none of it really did it for me. Did you ever read Odyssey of a Space Tyrant, Piers Anthony? No. Well, I might have, because I think at one point, up until like the early 90s, I had read everything that man had written. Really? I'd even written yeah. him a letter. Really? And he, and he had answered it. Yeah. Oh, shit. What did he yeah. say? I don't even remember. <laughs> you know, I was like, holy shit, who's this from? Florida. I don't know. Oh, shit. I wrote to him. So. That's crazy. Yeah, I, I, I didn't read a ton of Piers Anthony, but I did read Odyssey of a Space Tyrant. And that yeah. was that was a seminal experience. That was one of those really memorable series nice. that I read at that age. Um, so Piers Anthony always that's always a name that that sparks a lot of memories for me. What um so when you were trying to write fantasy fiction, what was it that wasn't working when you look back at it now? What was it that was missing the mark for you? Reality. Huh. Okay. Like I can put fantastical elements into realistic fiction, but for some reason I have a difficult time putting realistic elements into fantastical fiction. Uh, interesting. Interesting. That makes complete sense. I could, I could, I could, I've never tried doing that, but I could see that being an issue. Yeah. Um, and that just reminded me of, Right, you want to know why there's horror and realism mashed up in my little head. So there's a poem. I think it's. I'm not sure if it's Stevenson or if it's Browning. It's from the 1800s. It's called mm -hmm. Little Orphan Annie. And to understand the poem, you have to understand that at that time period, people would literally go to an orphanage, and get a kid to come live at their house to do all the work. Right. So the poem is about little orphan Annie who's come to our house to say, to sweep away the cinders and, you know, you know, put the bread away. The poem, she talks about how goblins will come and get children that don't behave. You know, they like snatch them out of their beds and so all sorts of shit. When I was about six, I was terrified of that poem. Absolutely terrified. And the illustrations in that particular edition, mm -hmm. the goblins are like these long, thin, almost wooden creations. My mother chased me around the house reading that poem to me. So, you know, it, it doesn't surprise me when I start creating like an evil character or and all of a sudden, they've got like really long ears and really long nose, and I'm like, motherfucker, there you are again, you know. It's it, it is interesting. I mean i I was talking about this with some folks recently about how, um, I, I forget who said this. I want to say like Truffaut or somebody talked about this, but I might just be making that up. Anyway, but uh, the idea that um, most creative geniuses are fixated on one thing for the entirety of their career and their entire career is spent breaking that apart. It's a Woody Allen. Everything's about sex and death, you know, like that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, do you, are you, have you completely embraced 
that it seems like you have. So I feel like I'm asking an obvious question, but lesson is there like a romantic comedy dying to come out of you? And you're like, uh, yeah, I'll get to that eventually. Yeah. This is no. like, this is the thing, right? This is like, this where is you it. Be. Yeah. Yeah. There are, and I'm seeing them myself now, like trees, trees are a big thing for me. Um, Like in New England, if you dig deep enough, there's the lore about willow trees, you know, that they're going to uproot themselves and move at night. Um, the fact that so many oak trees and elms are planted in cemeteries, you know, and they feed off the dead. And just my younger son, when he was um, little, little, you know, driving past these orchards and apple trees look scary as fuck and he looks at the trees and he goes he sees them he goes the scary trees dancing with eyes on their hands and feet mm-hmm. and we're like oh, yeah yeah okay i can see that you know so yeah they're definitely new england and trees yeah and the dead that it's that's my world. You yeah. Know? Let, let's let's talk about that world for a second because I, I meant to dwell on that more. I don't think it's coincidental that you're in New England and that your life has been lived in New England. I feel like you wouldn't be writing this, at least not the same way, if you'd moved to the Southwest. You exactly. Think there's something to that? Yeah. Oh, no, I, I know it is. Um, so, like I said, grew up across from a cemetery. Yeah. It, it's a beautiful cemetery you know it's got a wrought iron fence around like three sides of it there's a chapel from the 1930s um you know there are headstones with guys from the civil war and war of 1812 Mm. Mm -hmm. all sorts um we still go there on a pretty regular basis but you know for more you know personal reasons now um, one of our grandsons is buried up near the front. Um, my grandparents are in the middle and our oldest boy, uh, he's buried up at the top. So the cemeteries are always, you know, integral to New England. I think you can't, yeah. you know, even in Boston, you go into Boston, you know, yeah. Yeah. Fine where the dead are planted. There's also a certain type of horror. I think even just when you talk in the literary sense that comes from New England, and obviously Stephen yeah. is a big example, but but I mean, right? I mean, it's a different kind of sensibility. I, I, I'm asking, I, I don't know enough, I can speculate, but have you given any thought as to why that is? Do you have any idea of why there's, and it is funny because as I said, Ben Fortier introduced me to your work and Ben's got his own issues uh, with, with uh, horror writing, all that. And of course he's in Rhode Island. And where it's like Lovecraft's there, it, from. Where, where Lovecraft is from. And it's like, you know, there's, there's just, there's something about new England and I'm not sure why that is. Um, do you know, have you ever thought about why so much comes from that area? I think because for, you know, granted I'm a mutt genetically, but for the English speaking people, yeah, we had Virginia for, you know, Jamestown, then, Roanoke, but Massachusetts Bay Colony. I mean, not only do you have the whole 
Salem witch trial. But if you go up just a little bit further into Maine, they had like a stone throwing devil on one island that if you went up there, there's nothing to see, but stones would be thrown at you. You know, I mean, it's just, wow. Yeah. It's, and there are even places that the native Americans be like, "Eh, you really don't want to go over there. There's something wrong. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. So strange. It's such a strange, and it's funny because it is such an old, the oldest part of the country, yet there's still so much that it seems like is beneath the surface and people still haven't totally mined. Yeah. Know, you know? And and New Englanders are really, really good at keeping secrets. It's terrible. You know? It's like you find stuff out. Like, what do you mean? No. Is that a waspy yeah. thing? Is it because it's because there's not enough not enough just saying yeah. what you mean and there's a lot of, you know, papering it over with with etiquette and and no Mind your belief. business. You mind your business. Okay, yeah. 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 I, in fact, like yeah, that was another thing I got in trouble with uh you know, with one of my sergeants. You know, they're doing a you know, contraband inspection in the barracks. And I'm sitting there like and I had like candy 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 my dad gave me this bag of candy and i'd hidden it inside the cotton balls i used to polish my boots and i thought i was set and the sergeant went to move it and it didn't weigh like a bag of cotton balls it weighed like a bag of hard candy <laughs> and, and he dumps it on my bunk and he goes where are you from I said because at the time I was from Connecticut, I went Connecticut, and he goes, "Oh, they teach you how to hide things in New England." I'm like they do, and that didn't go over well. <laughs> it was fucking the truth. We hide shit constantly, you know. But yeah. So let's let's. Um, I think that's necessary, Baxter. As I say, like I feel like a, a completely unqualified psychiatrist going through this, but I was like. Just the 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 writing like lends itself to so much speculation where you're like, where's all this coming from? So I, I wanted to ask all this backstory and kind of yeah. get some clarity about that. I guess the other piece though is the actual craft itself. And I want to ask about where what you thought Duncan Blood and Cross Massachusetts was going to lead to. Did you start thinking, hey, I, I this is going to be my magnum opus. This is going to be a novel. This is going to be a series of novels. Like, what did you, I mean, at that time, you know, the internet was still, you know, relatively yeah. massive. So, I mean, what, what did you think it was? How did you, th- how did you see any of this playing out? For me, it was, here is just people reading my stuff. They don't have to pay for it. I'm getting good feedback and I am compelled to write every day um, unless something has happened. Um, And I will post that something's going on if there's not going to be another story um, for the day. And I I literally write 500 words a day just on Duncan Blood. And then I, I cut that down to make it fit 
the 2200 uh, character limit. So, How long have you been in this battle rhythm that you're in now of churning out material? Because obviously that's very Instagram specific. But I mean, you've been working on this for a long time. I and mean, that when did it when did it settle in this rhythm and what did it look like before Instagram? Before Instagram, it was just me. It, it could be anything. You know, I've always just done that ass and seat. You know, I'm not going to get any writing done if I just sit and think about it. So and then why was that important to you to be writing? Why? Why? I mean, were you thinking there's got to be books in here? There's got to be a novel. Like it was no. just, was it therapeutic? What, what did you see a, the necessity to it, be? A lot of it is. Okay. I do want to be published. I, I love when I see that something of mine is sold. You know, I still submit, though not as much. Um, maybe seven years ago now, I submitted a short story to a. Uh, this guy who was just starting a publishing house, he liked the story. We made a deal because I was out of work at the time where for a flat fee, I would write a book. We'd see how it went. Um, so I wrote it as a ghostwriter. So I don't have any credit. And I did like 60 books for the guy. Of 60 novels and about 20 more of just short story collections. And so, you know. And that was all ghostwriting. Yep. Yeah. How did that, how did that feel? <laughs> I mean, I mean, I could see some pros and I could see some cons. Um, eventually it got to the point where I was just sick and tired of dealing, not with the original guy. Because he's great. He's a really good guy. He's a really bright guy, too. He has made a living off this. He's got multiple authors now. He's got them. He's got audiobooks. The books are being translated into Spanish and German. I mean, just he's done well. Uh, part of me is upset because, hey, yeah, look at me. I'm special. Look what I did. But the other part of me is like, yeah, that's great that there are f Facebook fan pages for this author. But that also means that I'm not getting all these extra thirsty people, you know, blowing up my inbox or trying to find out where I live. Because that's, uh, that's something that, that they are actively trying to do. And I, I, don't, I don't want that. No. <laughs> I want the money. I don't want anything else. Sure. Sure. Um, was that, so that's a pretty, I mean, that should have been a pretty big break in a lot of respects, right? Yeah. Did that translate that way? Were there good second and third order effects that allowed you to kind of uh, either because of the money or because of the exposure, not that your name is being exposed, but just within the industry that it good word of mouth. I mean, what, did anything happen from that? Not really. And I think that's more on me than anything else. Um, so we had three children. Our oldest boy was 28, daughter is 24, and our youngest son is 12. Um, 
our oldest boy uh, struggled with mental illness and uh, he lost that struggle in August. And so for the past couple of years, though, we've been really focused on stuff other than me becoming an established, well-known writer. It's never even crossed my mind as something serious. I go upstairs, I sit down, I write. Um, but other than that, it's basically just been trying to put food on the table, making sure there's heat, and you know, trying to keep the family together. Uh, and that's and that, and that was because of how much focus you were placing on your oldest son. Not all of it on him, but that was there was a big part. Um, yeah, I mean, I saw that post obviously, and I, I mean, that's I mean for. I mean, I don't uh, have to be a dad to be heartbroken for you, but as a dad, was, I'm especially heartbroken. I mean, that that just seemed that was hard. that was fucking brutal, man. Still is. I, I don't doubt it, and I don't. And l- let me let me segue off that to say, how did that? I mean, that can't be compartmentalized from your writing, right? I mean, no. Some of that has to bleed in, doesn't it? Yeah, and it does. Um, it does. I am working on a couple of books for that company that I've been working with. And my name's actually on the covers now with, uh, with another gentleman. And you know, the past, the past two books I did, it's there, you know, cause I was finishing up one and then the other with, um, right after this happened and you, there's no way to try to keep it out. I didn't even bother. Um, so it is there with the character. It has to be, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, you can't. Yeah, you you can't compartmentalize that. I mean, that, that of course. No. And especially when your when your instrument is as honed as yours is, if you're writing every day, I don't see how you could possibly keep yeah. that apart. Um, is have you found that to be true for all of your writing that your writing is susceptible to what's going on in your life? Or oh, guaranteed. It is. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, it's the easiest way to deal with some of the things that I'm, you know, I might be going through. Um, I mean, I've got, I don't write poetry much anymore, uh, but I've got a good, maybe 40 or 45 pages just since my son passed trying to work through some of the stuff, you know, mm-hmm. but when you have a, when you have a subject matter or a genre as specific as cross Massachusetts is, does that, do you ever feel like that's painted you into a corner where you're writing where you can't necessarily be as reflexive to something going on in your life because you're like, well, I'd like to be say something, but I'm kind of in this genre, and I can't. I don't like. There's parts of it. It's it's going to be so subtle for me to feather that into what I'm writing because I, I I'm just it. The story is in a different place, or is it something that you really, that you find to be pretty malleable that you can really inject stuff from your own life in there? I, I think it's pretty malleable. Okay, um, which is why I like working with the reality aspect of it. Um, 
I don't think I could tackle a subject quite so serious as the death of a child in a fantasy story or in a sci-fi story. For myself, I couldn't. Um, I can, I feel, with realistic fiction, um, like realistic car, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I've got a piece with uh, Dead Reckoning right now that they're looking at that is no horror whatsoever. Yeah, I know. Wow. Yeah. Where did that come from? Um, that one comes from all the veterans that I've met. Like, my wife will reprimand me. Like, if we go into a store, you know, I see a guy walking by or a woman walking by with a baseball cap, you know, that says their unit or whatever. And she goes, don't, don't, don't do it. And I'm like, Ugh. you know, that's why it's, you know, it's hell when I go to the VA. I got to keep focus. You know, I'm like, oh, shit, that's a Korean War vet, you know. Or you see some really old guy going along. It's like, fuck, that says Batan on his hat. You know, yeah. no. So, but I've met guys my whole life because my dad, that's the circle that he was in, you know, Vietnam vets and their fathers were all World War II vets, you know, and their, you know, younger uncles or older brothers are Korean War vets, you know, and so I've just, it, it, yeah, it's what I've always talked to. When you talk, why is that, why is it such an attraction still? Is it to, reminisce is it to pick their brains is it what what do you get out of it what is the allure of talking to vets so i love history Mm. history is just i mean i have a master's in military history that's my it's my thing um but it's also to acknowledge that how few people really step up and, and lift their hand and go yeah yeah, here I am. I'll do it. You know, I'll go forward. I will do this. Whether they were drafted or whether they chose to do it, they still did it. You know, um, and I just find that endlessly admirable and fascinating at the same time. You know, are you envious in any way? I would have been when I was younger. Mm. Definitely would have been because that was the gung ho me. Yeah. The adult me goes, holy shit, thank you, God, I was not shot at, you know? I mean, I've, I've been shot at in other instances, just not in combat. Right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, so. No, that, I, I could see that. I, I guess I, I've asked this sometimes of, of people just because, I mean, it's it's our era's where were you when JFK was shot? Um, yeah. What did 9-11 mean to you? I was, it was weird. It was weird because there was the sadness of it. Um, guy I went to high school with, a really nice guy too. And he, there aren't a whole lot of people I can say that about, you know, that I know as friends. Just, he was yeah. a really nice man. Um you know, freshly married daughter on the way. He was in one of the planes that hit the towers. So that was that was pretty sad. Um, 
angry that it had happened. And then there was that whole disconnect, militarily speaking, where it's like, wow, the strategy of getting five planes in the air and mounting an attack like that, it, it, it was brilliant. Hateful, sure, but brilliant. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and but I also recognized what had happened that I was not able to do anything in response to it. Um, 2001 married two kids, house, you know, responsibilities other than to my own ego. You know, and that's all it would have been um, to try to get back in. It just would have been an ego thing, and uh, and I understood that surprisingly. It wasn't a whole lot I understood in mm, <laughs> that yeah. age, but at that time, were you writing every day? Then, oh yeah, across Massachusetts, Duncan Blood still <laughs> not every day on him. Okay. But I, I was writing every day, whether it was poetry, whether it was a short story in general. So, did you yeah. did did nine eleven make its way into your writing in some way, shape, or form? I don't think so. I don't think so, because I think it was too big, mm. too big an event. It would have felt too on the nose. <laughs> to write anything yeah yeah it's like you see people and you're like wow you know these are people who can write about it and you see other people who can do something about it you know and and we always go back as a community we go back to pat tillman you know yeah. gave up everything um there's another author and i can't jane Vizzy. I don't know what her married name is now, but she was a trader on Wall Street when this happened. Well-to-do, very intelligent, like big house out in the country in New York. 9-11 happened, quit her job, sold her house, joined the Marine Corps. You know, I mean, those are people that can do those things. And it's one of the few times in my life where I was able to acknowledge that I wasn't able to do something. Um, offered up different services because I worked as a trash man. We offered to some of the guys, we offered to drive down and use dump trucks and stuff and clean, but they already had enough people right. doing that. So, but yeah. So I, okay. So, you know, I probably should just, just for my own clarification i should just uh get the timeline down right so when you got out of the military you get married what's the plan at that point what do you think you're going to do in life so let's see got married and i think it was 97 i was, was working as a librarian driving a bookmobile it's great but my plan was just be a librarian. Really? That was it, man. 
Did you think you would write? Did you think you'd be a librarian and maybe you could write as well? Oh, yeah, because I, okay. I was doing that, you okay. know? Yeah. Um, I'm not going to lie. The, my boss for the bookmobile had no idea how to operate the computer. So, you know, I would be sitting there theoretically looking up books. And as soon as they walked out of the room, I would flip over to the next tab and I'd have a, a, a word doc up and I'd be like, going, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Because that's the only practical thing I got out of high school was how to type. Yeah. I took a typing class. Down me. Eh. It but, works. Yeah. 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 But the plan was just to be a librarian. But at the time, this is 97, 98, it was like 867 an hour to be a librarian. And the city posted a job as a trash man, and that was like 13 something. And that was, yeah. yeah. I was like, shit. So I was a trash man for 17 years. Um, most of those 17 years, not going to lie, I was a miserable prick. I did not like the job. I did not like some of the guys I worked with. Uh, there was one guy, I swear to God, every time he talked, I wanted to punch him in the mouth. It was just, <laughs> he was just one of those guys. And he's, he's not that bad of a guy. It's just something about him. I was just like, motherfucker. Did you ever see the movie Mars Attacks? No, I remember Jack those Nicholson? ads. I remember. Yeah. Yeah. That well, was that wave of alien movies in the late nineties that came yeah. out. Yeah. So there's Mars Attacks and the original Aflac Duck. Yeah, Gilbert Gottfried. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, he sounded like the Mars Attacks alien, and you know the fucking duck, you know, <laughs> and, and he was pigeon-toed to boot. So yeah, you know, he'd walk in, and he'd start start to talk, and you know, me being the prick that I am, be like, "Shut the fuck up, man! Just shut up! You shouldn't talk like that, Nick. I'm gonna punch you in the fucking mouth in a minute. Just get out." So, seventeen years. You, do, yeah. you, you get retirement from that? I got hurt, and I couldn't prove that it was the truck that did it because <laughs> they magically lost all the write-ups I'd done about the equipment. So, but the thing is, it, it worked out because I wasn't I wasn't angry anymore, and we struggled for a bit, and it wasn't fair on my wife but I got screwed at another job right after that but I fell into teaching I was like you know what I'll substitute teach uh, I've got a, a master's I was like oh shit kind of like this that's weird because I hated school as a kid uh, like it and then they were like oh well, the only substitute position we have for the next couple of days is with these intensive needs kids. And I don't know if you've ever been in an intensive needs classroom. No, and I can imagine. It, yeah. it, it is a powerful experience, and I loved it. it the, kids, the kids were great. These were high school-age kids. Um, some of it's really rough. But for two years, I did that. I got hired full-time as a para. And you what do everything. That? What's a para? A paraprofessional, where you're not a teacher, you're one okay. step below. Um, and 
I mean, the teachers are right there with you. They they do all the dirty work too. Uh, we had one student. You know, you know the movie The Exorcist. Mm-hmm. Okay. Until that moment with that one student, I had never seen anyone projectile vomit before. (laughs) But so it was it was stuff like that. Um, But I had to stop with them because this one kid, like six feet tall, 200 plus pounds, dad and older brothers were all wrestlers. Dad and older brothers were all rangers. So they would all wrestle and roughhouse. And he got angry at me one day when I was talking to one of his friends. And he just cold cocked me and knocked me out. I mean, out like a light. Like I came to on the floor. Um, I was out of work for like a week. Uh, with a pretty severe concussion. I still, that was almost three years ago. I still don't see the color red properly. It was permanent. Yeah. So. Holy shit. Yeah. And, and then. That, did that end your career as a special needs teacher? And then they yeah. transferred you? Okay. No, they didn't transfer me. They're like, okay. oh no, you can come back. I'm like, oh no, no. My wife doesn't want me to come back. And my doctor said, I can't have any more head injuries i mean i'd had head injuries before that anyway right. uh, so covid hit and so i went to a place called saint christopher's academy a religious school they were looking for teachers because they were going to stay open during covid so i went in gotcha. i i taught there for two years and then i got cherry picked by another school and that's where I'm at now. Place called so, Founders. Okay, so there's several threads that are that are interesting <laughs> to me about this. And again, I'm I'm listening to all this with one ear, kind of still thinking of your stories and thinking of what has been driving you to create the world that you've been creating across Massachusetts. So the first thing that comes to my mind is you've had it seems like a lot of very abrupt ends of your career, of your different jobs with violent and irrational <laughs> endings. Am I crazy? Yeah. I mean, that's what it seems no, like. No, no, you're, no, you're, you're, that would be right on the nose, it seems. Yeah. I mean, and there's a part of me that goes chicken and egg or egg and chicken. I mean, it, does the writing flow from that where like, because there has to be, I, I would imagine, I'm, I'm trying to project here a little bit, but I mean, I would imagine there's a degree of phobia or a degree of, let's just say concern at the minimum, of the irrationality, unpredictability, and horror of life. Yeah. Is that fair? It it really is. Um, And it's in all aspects of it, you know? Um, Because obviously with my, my work stuff, like you said, it's just it's just crazy um and then you know life in general yeah yeah you know when when i found out about our son i had my daughter who was pregnant at the time and our little boy i was taking them for a ride 
out in the country near us because my daughter wasn't feeling well. You know, just got her out of the house, like, you know. And so my wife was home alone, unfortunately, when the police came to inform us. But it, that's a shock. You know, the phone rings in the car, unknown number. My daughter answers it. And she's like, it's the police. I'm like, And I talked to my boy the night before. I'm like, you know, did he come over to the house? Was he, was he angry? Did he do something, you know? And he had just not what I thought. And, but just that, just to be driving and to get that information, it's just like, yeah. Um, and I, I think that's a really horrific thing about life in general. And that you learn is that you don't get to seal everything up with a nice little bow and say, great, all done. Everything's the way I want it. Grand. Now shit ends. Whether you want it to or not, death's not going to let you finish. But the other big takeaway that I'm uh, that uh, based off everything you'd related about that timeline was that you got in your master's in military yeah. history, but you got it while you were a trash man, right? Yeah, I got that and my bachelor's while I was a trash man. What did you think that was going to lead to? Was it, what was the goal? What was the end game of that? So I got my master's in 2008. And the end game was to become um, like an associate or adjunct professor. Okay. I wanted to teach history to college, college kids. Um, unfortunately, 2008, the market dropped out. Right. Right. And all of a sudden, schools weren't hiring people with masters as adjuncts because now they could get people with terminal degrees, their PhDs, as adjuncts. And I was like, I am not going for a PhD right now. So, got you. Got you. So I was an extremely educated trash man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's funny. We're we're doing. Um... This is not a plug in any way, shape, or form, but it's just such a coincidence. Uh, we're doing Dudley Moore and Peter Cook's sketch show, Good Evening, right now at our parlor on Saturday nights. And one of the sketches um, that's so brilliant, they wrote it two different ways, and we decided to do both versions in the show just because it's funny. But it's a monologue um, where uh, Peter Cook originally uh, would go out there and talk about uh, being the most educated miner in his mind. And, and he's like, it's like, I'm not saying that, that mine, he's like, I'm not saying that people that work in a mine are dumb. Just the people that work in my mine are dumb. And, yes. and, and so he talk about that and about how he's trying to explain, explain Marcel Proust to people in the mine and all that. So that's like, what's going through my mind while you're saying that is I'm like, you're, you're that guy is, is the trash man, this overeducated writer. Did all this continually keep pushing you? I mean, I, I'm I'm wondering how much I can project onto this. Did all of it keep pushing you to write more that, hey, maybe the universe is trying to push you into saying, hey, all the rest of this shit, push it aside, do what you have to do, but focus more on the writing? I don't I don't think so. Because okay. I was just I was just angry. You know? Um I was just an angry angry guy uh, there used to be a running joke at work which was uh, you know a happy nick is a happy department 
<laughs> yeah. You were that guy. I, wa- I was. I oh, could wow. sit there in the break room. And I knew all the streets. I knew all the routes, everything. It would be Monday. And Monday was the day where they would send out the metal truck. The truck that just collects washers, dryers, metal. And I had a, a friend of mine named Corey. He was a he was a summer help kid. Really funny. And I would sit there, and they'd be like, all right, Nick, you're going to take one of the big trucks and go do yard waste. Yard waste is fucking terrible. I'm like, uh, you know, I, I think if you give that to me, I may have a hard time completing the run today. Well, are you going to make overtime? I said, I've never said I was going to make overtime. I said, I may have a hard time. I'm not feeling that great. I may have to take it a little slower than usual. If you're still taking the truck and like you're going with Scott, like, hmm, okay. So just make sure that I have a map, please. I don't know that area. It's like, you know that fucking area. Like, hmm, no, I'd probably do much better on the metal truck today with Corey. Like, no, you're not getting it. Like, okay, so just do me a favor, make sure you have a map. And I think that truck 85, I think I have to bring it down to the shop to get it checked out first before we go. Oh, yeah. Oh, fuck. And and then my foreman walk in, he he would throw the metal book at me. He goes, you got Corey in 154. Get the fuck out. You know? Jesus. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to, and there would be other days where I'd be like, I, I really don't want to do that. They'd be like, yep, no choice. I'm like, okay. So I'd go out, I'd work for three hours, go, hey, I'm not feeling well. See you guys. Park the truck, go home. You know? I mean, I have to imagine some of that is square peg in a round hole, right? I mean, that's not. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's different if you're working in kind of something that lines up with your goals and aspirations a little more, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, I guess what I'm fascinated by is, were you pulling every lever available to make it as a writer during that time and going, God, any day I could be out of here? Or were you resigned to just thinking, hey, this is it, this is going to be it, and we'll just see how much writing I can squeeze in in the the meantime? Yeah, it's definitely the latter. Wow. Um, and, you know, again, my wife, you know, because there'll be days, most days, we're like, this sucks. I hate it. It's miserable. And other days, I'll be like, ah, oh, it's the greatest job in the world, blah, blah, blah. You know? Um, and I didn't feel comfortable, like, when a position of authority would open up. Because I was, in one sense, I was happy with the friends that I had. And those friendships would end yeah. without a doubt if I went up to be a foreman. Yep. Um, it, 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 yeah. Why, why weren't you taking your writing career more seriously? Why weren't you able? I mean, I know it's hard when you're shoehorning it around a full-time work schedule, but were there, were there, did you, were there just no other avenues where you're like, Hey, I'm, I'm tapped out. There's nothing else I can do. All I can do is all I can do. Or were there things that you could have done, but you were just like, I'm not in the headspace or for some reason you're not pursuing those. I think it was primarily a combination of I'm tired because you know, I was working as a trash man. I was working a part-time job at Barnes and Noble. Uh, 
and I was also going to school one or two yeah. nights a week. Yeah. And there's always the sense of self-doubt. You know, is this good enough? And that's one of the biggest things that I talk to other writers and creative people about. Like, listen, you just got to send it. Yeah. yeah. Because I did it for a long time. I'd send a piece. It would get rejected. I'd be like, all right. I'm going to mope about this for a couple of months. And now it's at the point where if I decide to send something out, it comes back rejected. I'm like, ah, it sucks. All right. Who's next on the list? Mm. You know? When did you first submit something? Publication. <laughs> the first time I submitted on my own, I was 19. Wow. I had a couple rejected. And then I, I submitted a poem to, you know, again, not for money, just a publication that got accepted. Um, so that was pretty interesting. Uh, so started pretty young. Was it consistent? Did you consistently submit throughout all these years or were there peaks and valleys? Peaks and valleys. Yeah. Um, there might be a year or two where I didn't. I really started off in probably the early 2000s, and that was just with book reviews of military books. Uh, I would you know, do that, and then I got published in, you know, the AK-47, right? Mm -hmm. There's a two-volume set called Russia at War. Encyclopedia of Russia at War. And there's an entry on Kalashnikov. And if you read that entry at the bottom, it tells you that I am the one who wrote that entry for the encyclopedia. So I did a lot of nonfiction writing. Got you. How did so that feel? What, How did that feel, the non getting response to nonfiction versus getting responses to the fiction? I liked it. I like it both ways. I like it when anything gets accepted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nope, I could see that. The um, let's jump to just where things now stand with Cross Massachusetts. Instagram has been a huge help to you, hasn't it? Oh yeah, yeah, I would imagine. And it's yeah. and you're writing for the for that medium almost now, right? Yes. Yeah. What's the plan with that? What's the plan with Cross Massachusetts? The plan is to finally get off my dead ass at some point and start really combining them into specific books. Like this whole month is just about 1931. So I may go back and start picking out all the stuff from the 30s and putting it into one mm. combined volume. Um, but I've got. I've got a lot of crap that I'm doing. Like I'm finishing up a graphic novel with another guy, um, working with Dead Reckoning, seeing what's going on with that. And I may put out to a poetry place, you know, some of the poems that I've done recently. So it, it really is just a matter of me going, okay, I've taken this much energy on cross. What am I doing? Am yeah. I getting the books ready? Am I doing an audio thing? So, yeah. yeah. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I um, I hope you do. I, I should say, probably the most initially alluring part of your Instagram posts are those pictures. Where the yeah. fuck are you getting those pictures from? <laughs> I'm like, does this guy have like a family library of pictures that you're taking and like writing, making up backstories for? Where, where are these pictures coming from? All right. The Library of Congress. Really? Primarily, it is the Library of Congress. Um, if we want to break it down into percentages, I would say 90%, if not more, are just Library of Congress. The other 5 or 10% are from another site that is all, uh, what do you call it? Like public domain. Images. Thank you. Or, yeah. Yep. It's a Pickerel or something. P-I-C. Oh. Are, but you okay. gotta dig. You gotta dig. Yeah, I mean, how much time do you spend curating pictures? That is generally the longest amount of time. Yeah. Um, if I'm lucky, it's five or ten minutes. Sometimes I do like forty-five minutes looking for one image, and I'll have a basic idea of the story, like when I was finishing up last month. I sat there. I'm like, I'm like, okay. You know what? Duncan hasn't been to Miskatonic recently. What the fuck's going on with Miskatonic? Like, shit. My daughter just had our uh, our grandson Charles, and you know, so many things can go wrong with a pregnancy. Like, what if those assholes at Miskatonic? have found a way to try to breed or attempting a way to breed Lovecraftian monsters. I'm like, all right, let's go. And so I'm like, what am I going to need first? Who am I going to need? He's got to have a reason to start looking into this. And that's where we come up with Genevieve. So I found a picture of an attractive young woman from the, you know, late 20s, early 30s, because I, I look for specific dates, too, so everything falls in line. Like, bang. Like, yeah, there she is. Well, what about her? What about her dad? How does Duncan know? And that's how it comes out. And like last night, so I was like, surgery. Yeah, I need a picture of a surgery. So I find it like, oh, I know what's going on in that fucking picture. And then just bang, it drops. So that was one that literally you just based everything off the picture. Yeah, I have a general idea. That's like every one. I see the picture and the story comes out. The picture is your prompt. Yeah. Holy fuck. And so, how much editing do you do on each story? Is it a quick flash to bang? Is it like you churn it out that day and it's out there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like I sit down. I find the picture. I crop it the way it needs to be. I open up the dock. I know roughly as I'm writing how much I need. I go through it. I'll do a quick character count. Um, usually when I'm around 400 words is right in the proper area. But if I'm really flying, you know, I'll hit like 450, 500 words, and then I've got to go in. I'm like, okay, I can tell this part of the story without this line. I can take this out. I can move this here. That's a good description, but it's not going to fit there. 
you know. So, but it's, I mean, maybe 45 minutes to an hour, everything's done and uploaded. Shit. So, (laughs) that's incredible. Um, What, how much is that going to change or adapt if you're now looking at putting it into book form? Where obviously the character count and all that, it's like, does that still make sense to write things that way? Or is it? Are you basically going to look at it as like a first draft, and now you have to go back in and insert, reinsert more stuff for different stories, and you know, recreate certain things? Well, I think that, like, if I do the 1930s combination, right, I can go through, and as I read it, I'll be like this needs a little more or I can do more here and just it'll flesh out as it goes. Um, And I also like to throw in the few that I have put into book form. I like to put in like a little note from Duncan at the beginning, things like, you know, my friend Dave at the historical society, you know, wanted me to, you know, submit this one to him to store Here's what you're going to find. You're not going to like it. Close the book now. You know, so. It's fucking trippy, man. Um, Listen, Nick, you've been, um, I mean, I've got questions. We could keep doing this for hours, Um, (laughs) but I I won't hold you to that. I'll let you get on with your life. But uh, do tell everybody where they can be, where they should be following you, what they need to be keeping their eyes open for, just all your plugs links instagram all that stuff instagram is honestly the biggest thing um you, you just go into instagram cross massachusetts uh there is a link tree in my bio that should if it works offer up uh access to amazon and where you can find the book forms and stuff other than that it's just uh, pick and choose Okay. Yeah, but yeah. but Instagram is definitely the the best one stop shop for everything that you're yeah. working on. Um, yeah. Dude, this was. Uh, thanks for answering this, man. There was I had so much. I was like, man, I got to ask him about this and that. And the, uh, <laughs> the pictures was definitely one. I was like, I got to find out where the hell he's getting these pictures from. I was yeah, like, that's awesome. not that's not on Canva, man. I'm like looking there. I'm like, who's getting this stuff? It's fucking brilliant, man. No, um, you go go on to loc.gov. Go to the photographs, prints, and drawing drop down, and you type in anything. Type in like Cuba, the Acropolis, okay, and you will see all the bones that were just pulled out of graveyards and just stacked like thousands Holy of them. Shit. Yeah, it's fucking great. That's a great tip. That's a yeah. great tip in general, man. I, I do need to go there more <laughs> often. Um, dude, let's do this again. Let's talk. Sounds again. hot. And and definitely when uh when Dead Reckoning starts moving or any of your stuff is coming up um up on the net like let's let's push it it's, sounds yeah, good thank you I, I would i would love to talk more um yeah let's talk down the road brother this was a blast all right it was fun thank you so much and uh get some pizza for that boy you know <laughs> before you brought him in front of the tribunal that was the savage wonder of nicholas f stathew ah uh, i really like that dude Nick is a really good guy. Really appreciated being able to sit down and talk with him. I appreciate it as somebody that reads, um, or I should say is ambushed by his writing every day on Instagram. 
Uh, I appreciate getting the chance to get a lot of my questions answered. But also, uh, just a really good intellect, really good head on his shoulders, really smart guy, clearly a very talented writer. Um, I just really liked him. He's a really good dude. And I'm really interested to see what the future holds for him. Um, I won't talk about what he and I talked about offline, um, but I'm interested to see what other projects he has going on, what happens with Cross Massachusetts, um, what develops with that. Um, and on a personal note, I'm interested to see where his, um, where his life and his career go. I I think Nick is a dude that deserves some time in the sun and, uh, maybe literally or figuratively. Um, I, I think, you know, I am so impressed with his discipline as a writer. Um, even if that discipline was born from a therapeutic need to write, that's really impressive the years that he has put in to writing and building these characters, building this environment and all the other writing he's done on top of across Massachusetts. Um, and, and that it's been a daily exercise for so long is really impressive. Um, such prolific work and, um, and the talent is clear and the emotional impact of what he writes is significant. And, uh, yeah, I'm really interested. Uh, there's, I'm interested to see what happens with him going forward. Let me finish that thought. Um, the other takeaway I had, I have a little bit of a case of Esprit d'Escalier, the that old French saying, a uh, wit of the staircase, which comes from that sense you get when you leave a party and you're going down the staircase and you suddenly remember all the things you should have said instead of what you either did or didn't say at the time. I have a little bit of a case of that uh, with Nick, only to the extent that when we were talking about him and some of the stuff he had gone through, you know, he has a a necessary hardness around some of those um, experiences, which makes complete sense to me. I wonder, and this is something I I really, I don't know, I'm kind of torn. I should have talked to him about it on the air and bounced this off him um, because I hate to kind of speculate without him here to say anything uh, about it. But I'll, I'll kind of put this in the most non-conversational way I can um, and the most oblique way maybe that I can. I wonder, I wonder how much his life and his writing um, intersect or diverge. And I know I'm being a little vague. Let me try to be a little more focused uh, in what I'm trying to say. I think it's hard when you're writing horror of that degree and you're writing it justifiably because of trauma that you've experienced, but it does make it hard, I think, to pivot out of that cycle. And I just wonder how much chicken and egg and egg and chicken happens. Um, I don't know. That's something I'd like to talk to him about in the future. See if, you know, see if that's crossed his mind or, um, or whatever. And, uh, I don't know, just a stray thought that I had. Uh, and I guess that's a long way of also saying that the conversation was interesting enough that I kept thinking about it, uh, far enough after that when I recorded this outro, (laughs) 
it was still on my mind. Um, but yeah, I just wonder about that because I think it's hard. I think, uh, you know, like, you know, like anyway, everybody knows, you know, the mental resilience and the, and the, and the toughness to, to overcome hard times sometimes needs a shift in perspective and a shift in mindset. And it's hard, man, the way he writes. And the, the problem I have with it is that his writing is so goddamn good in that genre. It's kind of hard to switch horses. Um, and, you know, as I said, when I asked him, you know, do you have a romantic comedy in you somewhere? He's like, no, this is, this is it. This is what I'm writing. It's like, yeah, that's hard, man. That's hard stuff. That is a hard fucking horse to keep riding. Um, and good for, I mean, I, I'm just stunned at how much he can still mine um, with clearly so much energy and so much vigor and so much thought that he has put into these characters in this environment. Um, but I really, uh, I'm looking forward to see what happens in the future. And I think, uh, I'm interested to see how his life and his career progress. Um, cause I think, I think Instagram has been really good for him. I think it'll continue to be good for him. And I think it's going to change things. I don't know how. But I think I think it'll change things. I think there's going to be additional exposure, and I think his, I think some things are going to happen. I think with getting some stuff published, I'll be interested to see just what happens with his career. Anyway, not to go on and on, but hey, if you're listening to me still at this point, then I think you know what you signed up for. <laughs> you can go to the next episode or the previous episode. You didn't hear that uh, at any point. Um, but anyway, yeah, I'm I'm kind of just thinking to myself now. But anyway, I'm really interested to see what happens with Nick. Just a big fan of his work and um, wish we could feature more of it on the blog. But as I say, it's a rough thing for people to read at 8 o'clock in the morning in their email inboxes. So <laughs> I never, I, I, I was a true Gen Xer. I never appreciated trigger warnings ever until I started reading Ben Fortier's work and, uh, and, and then Nick's. And I was like, oh, huh. Yeah, I can't. I can't just put this stuff out without a trigger warning. <laughs> that would that would not be cool for people. But anyway, um, big fan of Nick, and we'll see what happens with him. What do you guys need to know about Vet Rep? Um, not a whole lot. We're wrapping up our 2022 season. We are a little bit of a strange entity. Most theaters run, you know, across New Year's Eve. You know, they'll do a 22-23 season. Um, we don't. We run very much on the calendar. Um, mostly because that just makes more sense to me. <laughs> so we're wrapping up our 2022 season right now. Um, and we're, I think we've got barely a few tickets left to sell for our remaining two shows. So I'm not, you know, come on out, see good evening. If you're able to, if you're in the area um, in near Cornwall, New York, we'd love to see you here, but you know, I'm not super worried. Those shows will continue our streak of sellouts and I'm, not super worried about it. Um, I think the only thing I really should say is you are listening to this episode on the week of giving Tuesday. So, um, I'll do a little shameless plugging for us as an entity. Um, this has been our first full calendar year of existence and except for four proof of concept shows in 21, this has been our first year of doing live performances. And we've done a shit ton, if I do say so myself. Um, 
if you like hearing about people like Nick, um, like everyone else that we've talked to on the podcast, like the folks we featured on our Right Louds on Instagram Live, like the folks we featured at the Savage Wonder Festival or Savage Wonderground, or the playwrights whose work we've we've been giving grants to or whose plays we are de- now developing. If you um, like all that, if you want to support veterans in the arts and their ability to be showcased in live performances, please consider donating to us. It would mean a lot. You can find out everything about your donation, how it will be used, what we put the money towards. We don't spend it on overhead. All your donation goes to vet rep productions, not to salaries, not to overhead, nothing like that. So um, 100% of your donations go to uh, getting content, getting programming out there to the live performing audience, to a, to a live audience. So uh, everything you want to know about that is at vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. Um, just go to the donate or support us tab. You'll see all the information about how to sponsor events, sponsor us in various ways, or donate uh, to us. And we deeply appreciate it. It is giving season, so we would be remiss as a 501c3 if we didn't um, you know, ask you guys for support. A uh, little bit of an, the economics of live theatering, um, small nonprofit theatering maybe. Uh, about 10 to 40% of an average nonprofit theater's revenue is earned. The rest is contributed. So 60 to 90% of most nonprofit theater's revenue is contributions. We are no exception. So 60 to 90% of our revenue, we need donations from folks like you. If you're able to donate, we deeply, deeply, deeply appreciate it. And um, yeah, we hope you had a great Thanksgiving and we hope you will have a good Christmas and we appreciate your considering us for any donations because it does mean a lot to us. And without it, um, this, this platform will not continue to be able to support veteran artists as much as we would like, if at all. So we do rely on you guys. Uh, so if you're able to support, we do appreciate it. Okay. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer on behalf of Veterans Repertory Theater. See you next time. We will dive further into the savage wonder of veterans in the arts. <laughs>